If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 12. That's starting in verse 38. And the text is there on the next page of the bulletin, if you didn't have a Bible with you. So over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. So the the Pharisees, uh, primarily, uh, were prejudiced against Jesus. At this point here, uh, where we are in this chapter, they're already set against Jesus. They're already committed to his destruction. If they engage with any dialogue, uh, in in any dialogue with him, uh, if they ask him any questions... Uh, it's a pretense. It's not done with any genuine, genuine curiosity, uh, willingness to learn. They've already heard enough. Now they're looking to trap him in his words or to lure him into saying something that they can use against him uh, to twist his words or to interpret his actions uh, according to their own bias. Uh, they are given over to their enmity against Jesus. And Jesus says this represents ethnic Israel at this point. Uh, the, the nation whom the Hebrew scriptures portray as the chosen people of God, right? The people of God, you could say uh, that that theme, the people of God, is a pretty important theme in the Bible. In fact, you could say that God dwelling with his people is the point of the whole Bible. So it can be hard for us to understand what's going on when you read the Old Testament, the, the majority of the Bible And we see Yahweh's interactions with the people of Israel over so many centuries. And we see the special place that he's given to them in the world. And then we see that people turn so thoroughly against him in their enmity with Jesus. If his own people rejected him like this, what then? I mean, is the whole biblical vision of God dwelling with his people abandoned? Who are the true people of God then? Uh, If not them. So... That's what we'll talk about this morning from Matthew 12. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word is full of uh, many things, wondrous things, really, about how you relate to us. So we pray that you would help us to hear and believe and grow in our relationship with you through your word as we consider it together now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. 
while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So these three paragraphs might seem, uh, you know, just pretty separate, like they're on three unrelated topics, but they're connected just as everything uh, in this chapter has been. Jesus is developing and advancing an, an argument, and a complete picture is beginning to emerge at the end of it here. So back in uh, verse 22, Matthew 12, 22, Jesus healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. That's sort of the beginning of these conversations about uh, demons and the devil and demon oppression, right? Uh, so that kicked off this current round of controversy with the Pharisees who Jesus, uh, they, they accused Jesus of operating by the power of the devil. They say, well, you only cast out that that demon because you have demon power, and you could do that. Um, Jesus responded to them as if to say, well, that's ironic since my works demonstrate that uh, I've come from God while your opposition to me indicates that, uh, that, in fact, you're of the devil. So sometimes the claims of Jesus are subtle. Sometimes they're not so subtle. Uh, whatever the case, the Pharisees, definitely understood Jesus. They understood that he was making claims of divinity, having come from God at least. And they understand that he was accusing them of devilry. And uh, they hated it, which is why they sought to destroy him. So whoever you are, whatever you think of Jesus, it is undeniable that people hated him and killed him for such claims as this. His claims have always been controversial Hated by some, loved by others. So when the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the experts of Israel in all matters, you know, concerning religious law, scriptural law, uh, religion, religious life. The experts of Israel, when they said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. you They're not genuinely interested in being convinced by Jesus about the legitimacy of his claims. They're, they're not being open-minded, suggesting to Jesus that a miraculous sign it might just do the trick and persuade them to become his followers. They're already in deadly combat with Jesus. It's already, Scripture says, they've already plotted to uh, destroy him. Uh, so many skeptics today say they're agnostic about Christianity. Agnostic means uh, without knowledge. I just don't know. They just don't know, right? They say they, they don't know. They, have, they don't have enough data to make an informed decision about Jesus. Uh, maybe if God would just somehow prove to them through this or that sign, you know, they're open-minded enough to make a fair judgment. That's what a lot of agnostics say. But in reality, um, unfortunately, no sign will satisfy them. The apparent openness to learning something persuasive about Jesus really ends up just being a mask Uh, cover for a closed and hardened heart. Rather than just say it out loud, I don't like Jesus, I don't like his claims. They'll make it as if it's Jesus' fault for failing to provide like a satisfying sign uh, that would have convinced them that he's just failed to meet the criteria for my judgment. 
And those who are really opposed to Jesus in their hearts, uh, they'll take anything Jesus says, anything Jesus does, and they'll twist it and they'll turn it against him. So Michael Green is a commentator on this. Uh, He uh, says there's a quote printed there at the uh, bottom of the page. He says, underneath intellectual doubt, there is sometimes, not always, a heart that does not want to know the answer. And so Jesus can provide any miraculous sign he wants, but they'll interpret it their way and they'll argue with him about it all the way to their graves. That's what's happening here with the Pharisees. They patronize him. They call him uh, teacher, right? Even though they don't, uh, they don't want to learn from him. They don't want him as their teacher. And they ask him for a sign that they don't really want to see, that they, they're going to interpret out of hostile hearts, turn it against him, use it against him. They've already had a sign, and they've interpreted it this way. Jesus has undeniably healed this demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute from his demon oppression. They already had the opportunity to, to see that and to be persuaded that Jesus was, in fact, good, that he was from God. They could have interpreted that miraculous sign as a divine blessing. But they said, bah, that's just the devil's power at work in you. So, in fact, the enemies of Jesus, they're already aware of several miraculous signs that he's done by this point. Cleansing lepers, healing paralytics, uh, healing all who were sick, uh, calming a storm, casting out demons. This wasn't the first time he's done this. Uh, Restoring sight to the blind, raising a girl from the dead, restoring the man with the withered hand. His enemies had what they needed to make an informed decision about him. They could have made a fair judgment if it was truly in their hearts to do so, but that's not what this is about. As if, you know, one more miracle, that'll be sufficient to satisfy their curiosity. Jesus knows that their hearts are set against him. He's already talked about this evil in the root of their hearts. So he answers them in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he uses this phrase, uh, an evil generation, a couple times here in this passage. We tend to think of a generation as a, you know, a group of people born around the same time, within a few decades, right? Uh, the greatest generation, the silent generation, the baby boomer, boomer generation, uh, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, etc. Right? That, that's not how Jesus is using the language. It's not, he's not just talking about people who were born within a few decades there. Uh, he's referring to those who are generated or born from the house of Israel. Uh, He calls it an adulterous generation, which is language, that language of adultery is reserved for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, The people who are betrothed to God or even the bride of God, right? Supposed to be this faithful spouse to God, spiritually speaking. Spiritual adultery is what he's talking about. And it isn't the Gentiles, it's not the non-Jews, right, all those other people out in the world who are adulterous because they haven't been in this special, close relationship, intimate relationship with God. That privilege has belonged to the house of Israel. So Jesus is saying that the scribes and the Pharisees, as they come to him, asking for a sign out of false hearts, he's saying that they represent Israel, that adulterous nation. In, in its enmity, in its faithlessness, in its spiritual adultery against God, because they have not embraced their God when he came in the flesh, when he came doing signs and wonders to bless his people. 
Right? So he says that they're seeking for a further sign, reveals their evil and adulterous hearts. And so the only sign they're going to get will be the one that condemns them. The sign of Jonah, Jonah, the self-righteous prophet who resented God's grace. So uh, Jonah refused to embrace God's calling in his life. He refused to go to the Gentiles, uh, to, to those nations, to Nineveh in particular, to call for their repentance. Jonah thought that he was entitled to exclusive privilege as being one of God's chosen people. But in reality, he hated God. And he hated God's mercy toward sinners. That's clear. Read the book of Jonah. We've talked about it before. When, when Jonah saw God forgive the wicked Ninevites, it drove him insane with anger. He hated it. And it sounds exactly like we ha- what we have here with the enemies of Jesus. It's the self-righteous, exclusive, entitled religious representatives of Israel who hate it when Jesus is so merciful to sinners and to Gentiles. So, so Jesus says they'll get the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? So uh, read 40 and 41 again. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights... In the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. Jonah went through a kind of death and resurrection. He was cast into the waters... It was a judgment that he was cast into the waters and swallowed by this great fish and then vomited out again. Right? It's a picture of judgment through death and resurrection. And it was after this resurrection, it was after his resurrection that he went and preached to the Gentiles. It was the risen prophet Jonah who went to preach to the Gentiles. And these, they really were the worst sort of people. Cruel, violent, ruthless, barbaric people. But they repented at the message of the risen prophet Jonah. And Jesus might be implying uh, something that those Gentiles maybe had heard of Jonah's sort of death and resurrection. That this tremendous sign from God, that this had happened to this prophet, it might have been a factor in their genuine repentance. And that same sign uh, seemed to have very little effect on Jonah himself, the one who was already dead set against God and his grace, who did all of this reluctantly. Uh, Jesus is saying <clears throat> that his own death and resurrection is the great sign of Jonah. It's the sign that shows him to be one greater than Jonah because it's a real death and a real resurrection. It shows him to be the ultimate prophet, the faithful witness, the one who does not reluctantly go and speak of God's mercy to others. But he's the true teacher of God's people who wins them to repentance. The resurrected prophet will draw all sorts of unexpected, undesirable people to repentance, to a new relationship with God. His death and resurrection and his preaching, the gospel about his death and resurrection in particular, they'll be enough for the nations, just like Jonah's preaching was enough for those Gentiles, even though those born into the house of Israel remain unsatisfied. So in the day of judgment, Jesus says, those wicked, cruel, violent, ruthless, barbaric sinners will rise up and condemn 
the house of Israel, the evil and adulterous generation. That's the kind of thing that should provoke them to jealousy. And Jesus continues along the same lines in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south. He's talking about the queen of Sheba. You can read about her in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's really an amazing story. Uh, So Sheba is, you know, if you went south from the land of Israel, I don't know how good your Middle Eastern geography is. um, uh, if you go south from Israel along the eastern shore of the Red Sea, so you're on the Arabian Peninsula, you go all the way down the, the Arabian Peninsula to the southern tip of it, it's present-day Yemen. Uh, it's exotic. It's foreign. It's faraway lands. You know, spices come from there, right? It's, uh, that's Sheba. That's Sheba. So the queen of that land undertook this great journey. She came literally from the ends of the earth to seek out the king of Israel. It says in 1 Kings chapter 10, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. So she sought out wisdom. I mean, the, you know, scribes and Pharisees go to Jesus saying, well, teach us, teacher, show us, you know. We want to know. We want to see. She sought out wisdom concerning the name of Yahweh. She asked the king, Solomon, hard questions about God. Her curiosity was real. Her, inter- her interest was genuine. She was truly seeking wisdom about life with God. Sometimes our questions uh, about God mask, mask hearts that don't want real answers. And sometimes, as in the case of the Queen of Sheba, our doubts and our questions are honest, and they're welcome, welcomed by God, in which case the king gives good answers to satisfy a hungry heart. Solomon was the son of David, the king whose wisdom was renowned and written in the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes and even some Psalms. <clears throat> the prosperous wisdom of the son of David It took the queen's breath away. That's what it says in uh, 1 Kings. So she praised him. She says, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because Yahweh loved Israel forever. He, He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And she gave him a treasure of gold and spices And then he gave her all that she desired, whatever she asked. So this is a beautiful picture of the wise king blessing those who were once far off, who come to him truly desiring his wisdom. It's just this mutual exchange of of gifts and love, really. So the, the Lord Jesus is this wise king. He's one greater than Solomon, receiving all sorts of strange foreigners who seek him out. And blessing them with answers to their deepest questions about life with God. And in the day of judgment, the house of Israel will stand condemned. Because here's all these weirdo, unclean Gentiles from, coming from the ends of the earth. Who desperately sought out Jesus and his wisdom. When the house of Israel should have recognized their king who's standing right before him. But instead they rejected him and crucified him. 
Again, that's the kind of thing that should provoke Israel to jealousy. And now, Jesus continues with one final warning related to the larger topic of demon oppression that's really been the subject of a lot of this chapter. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. Then it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So most people uh, seem to take this as, you know, it's a little treatise, maybe just kind of randomly plugged in there on the possession of individuals by demonic forces. Uh, Tell you how those things work, I guess, for some reason in the middle of this conversation. And they'll talk about how, you know, if a person was demon-possessed, then the only lasting solution is to be filled with the Holy Spirit because someone filled with the Holy Spirit can't be repossessed, right? And maybe some of that's true. I don't, but Jesus isn't talking about that. He's not talking about individuals, actually. He's talking about this evil generation. So also it will be with this evil generation. So he's talking about the house of Israel who have set themselves against him. This is something of a parable of their history, is what he's saying. This is a parable of the history of the people of Israel, the house of Israel. And and in the next chapter, he goes on to tell, you know, many parables of the kingdom. This is a parable of the anti-kingdom first. God chose Israel. God saved them out of the world. God set them free from the spiritual forces of darkness, from, from the demonic powers of Egypt and from the Canaanite gods. God took care of them, and he cleaned them up, and he put their house in order. When the demonic gods of this world move back in to take over the house of Israel, their rebellion against God, their sin, will be much worse than it was before. Worse than all the other nations of the world who weren't in that special relationship with God before. Now they'll they'll not just be hostile to God. They'll be the leaders of the world's hostility against God and against his Messiah his own people, his own flesh and blood. And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Here is his own flesh and blood. Doesn't get any closer flesh and blood than this. His, his earthly family. Mark portrays them as coming to, they're looking to seize Jesus and bring him home because they thought he lost his mind going on like this, right? Saying all the things that he's saying. John says in his gospel, not even his brothers believed in him, not before his death and resurrection anyway. Belonging to any earthly generation, being born any particular ethnicity, belonging even to the house of Israel, even in Jesus' own flesh and blood family, doesn't guarantee anything at all. It doesn't say anything necessarily about your relationship with him and your, the spiritual vitality of your relationship with him. No one can make assumptions about your relationship with Jesus. No one can rely on some aspect of who they are in and of themselves. Jesus replied to the man who told him uh, that his family was looking for him. He replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. 
Uh, just point out the obvious. That's what he says. His word establishes our relationship with him. Jesus says we belong to him in a, in a relationship closer than flesh and blood, in a relationship of the spirit, the true family and household of God, if we do the will of the Father in heaven, his Father in heaven, right? So what does it mean to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven? I mean, it's certainly not the will of the Father to offer up constant resistance to Jesus. Uh, Even if that resistance is cloaked in polite agnosticism, uh, the appearance of humble intellectual doubt. It is not the Father's will to twist Jesus' words in order to reject him, to keep him at a distance. It is not the Father's will to delay repentance, to procrastinate on defining your relationship with Jesus until maybe, you know, someday when you might feel a little more sure of yourself, you might be able to hold your own in a conversation with Jesus and meet him on something like equal terms. The Father's will is for you to behold his beloved Son. That's what he's said. Behold my beloved son. Behold my beloved servant. His servant with whom his soul is well pleased. The Father's will is for you to listen to Jesus, the ultimate prophet who's greater than Jonah, the teacher. The Father's will is to seek out Jesus, the true wise king greater than Solomon. The Father's will is to bless God who has delighted in Jesus and set him on the throne of Israel. So the Father's will is for you to come to Jesus with your honest doubts, like the Queen of Sheba, your hard questions even. The Father's will is for you to make genuine repentance like the people of Nineveh, to believe the many works Jesus has done to show that he is from God, that he is God. You have the opportunity to interpret that most magisterial of all signs, his resurrection from the dead. You have the opportunity to interpret it one way or the other. You can believe what's quite obvious, that uh, God approved the life and work and sacrifice of his beloved son, and that God testifies to all the world of the goodness and the glory of Jesus through his resurrection from the dead. You can believe that. Or you can believe that it's all a lie, that Jesus is a charlatan, that the more than 500 people who claim to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection were all in on the biggest conspiracy and scam the world has ever seen. But that's what his enemies chose to believe, uh, sometimes even his own flesh and blood. But the true people of God do the will of Jesus' Father. They believe his word. They celebrate his works. They follow his ways. Many times already in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has indicated to us what it looks like for people who truly belong to him to do his father's will. He's talked about this relationship between his father and us many times already in Matthew's gospel. They hear the father's words of pleasure in his beloved son. They're being renewed in the father's image in the son. They're peacemakers showing themselves to be sons, children. Of God, They love their enemies and pray for their persecutors, being perfected in a love just like their father's love, just like he is perfect in his love. They practice all their righteousness in secret for the father's sake, not for the sake of recognition or the praise of others. They pray to Christ's father as to their own. 
They pray for his will to be done. They forgive others, even as the Father has forgiven them. They build their lives on the word of the Father that's revealed in Jesus, the Son. So Jesus says, these are his family. His true mother and sisters and brothers. These belong to the true household of God. So when Jesus saw, uh, this, this is what it says in, uh, in John's gospel in chapter 19, when he saw his mother at the cross and he saw his disciple John, <clears throat> it says the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. So at the cross, Jesus has nothing, <laughs> nothing at the cross. He's stripped Bare, vulnerable, exposed. What you see is what you get. This is what this is his naked heart. And he loves us and he says to his disciples, What's mine is now yours. My family is your family. And in particular, of particular importance is when Jesus says, My father is your father. So in John twenty, <clears throat> the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, Mary sees him at the tomb and he sends, he sends her to the disciples. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father. So the risen Lord Jesus, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're family to the crucified Lord Jesus, to the risen Lord Jesus, to the ascended and glorified Lord Jesus. We're family to the God-man who rules over all things for the sake of his people. In him, we enjoy his own relationship with God. I think Jesus has a good relationship with God. He's shared it with us. We enjoy that very relationship. His father is our father, and not even death can destroy that bond because that relationship has already survived that death. In the resurrection of Jesus. He's, he's given his own spirit of sonship. To fill us. To unite us to God forever. We're brought into the divine life. Even as the divine family name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is placed upon us in our baptism. So Jesus makes us his brothers and sisters. And he also makes us brothers and sisters to one another, making us like families we're always meant to be. We belong to one another in Christ at the foot of the cross. We belong to one another in Christ at the foot of his throne in heaven before his Father and ours. The only basis for this gift is his good grace because it overcomes our sin. It overcomes what we deserve. It's a gift that goes beyond flesh and blood and even earthly family. It's a gift given those uh, really given only to those who believe what he says. And what he says is controversial and provocative, to be sure, but it's so good if you'd only believe it. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you have provided sufficient testimony in your many teachings and signs and wonders, abundant testimony throughout the scriptures that you are the one true God, come in the flesh, come in goodwill, Come to be with sinners, come to save us, come to restore and bring us to glory in spite of our sin. We thank you for this clear testimony, this, un this overabundance of clarity 
that comes from you, the great prophet and teacher. We pray that you would meet us in our genuine struggles. Help us even to voice our hard questions out loud. Meet us in our honest doubts. We pray that you would answer our deepest questions about God. We pray that you would give us the true wisdom for life with God that only you can give, wise King. We pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to make real repentance from our sin. We pray that um, we would be able to learn from you. We would learn from you, our teacher, and follow you, our King. So lead us in the will of your Father, we pray in your name. Amen.